0: Hey everyone, and welcome to the seventh episode of The Activist Files, the Center for Constitutional Rights podcast. I'm Ian Head, and I'm here with my colleague Chandra Haislett, Communications Director, who is filling in for Leo Sain while she takes a well-deserved sabbatical.
1: Hi everyone, it's good to be here as co-host. So I'm still trying to recuperate from my weekend. We had a bunch of activities last week at the Center for Constitutional Rights that you all will hear about later on. But I went to a four-year-old birthday party on Saturday and it was like 14 kids. And for those who don't know, I don't have kids. I love them, but I don't have kids. But there were, again, 14 like 4 year Mm four-year-olds at this party. The highlight of the party was the Trolls movie. I guess I don't know if this was the main character, but it was a huge pink troll named Poppy who was a little terrifying. But the birthday girl did love Poppy, and they had, like, this dance party. The soundtrack is pretty dope, though. Like, Justin Timberlake has a song on the soundtrack. And so there were a couple, like, really, like, adult songs on the soundtrack. But Uh then there was, like, this huge pink troll that was dancing. So that was part of my weekend as I was trying to recuperate from Changemakers and our brand reveal party. And our guest today, well, let me just back up, at Changemakers... We honor an activist, a lawyer, and a storyteller, and our guest on today's podcast fits into each category. So Ian, why don't you tell us a little bit about our guest?
0: Sure. Our guest is Jeribu Hill, who's the founder and executive director of the Mississippi Workers' Center for Human Rights. Jeribu is a human rights attorney and veteran community organizer, and also a former director of the Southern Regional Office of the Center for Constitutional Rights. Our interview with Jeribu is coming at the right time, since we recently made an announcement about expanding our work in the Southern region.
1: Welcome,
2: Jerubu. Thank you so much.
1: So you were an Ella Baker intern for the Center for Constitutional Rights. Was this your first introduction to CCR?
2: It was not. In fact, my first introduction to CCR was as a cultural artist in a group called Serious Business. And we used to do uh, performances and concerts and actions where music Uh, of a political nature was played and performed, and we were one of those groups. And uh, a lot of my friends were lawyers, so I participated in a number of police brutality demonstrations, uh, support for the Attica Mm. brothers, and a number of other political prisoners issues, and so forth. So yeah, I knew CCR before I even contemplated law school.
1: Okay, and it's interesting that You were doing cultural performance art for CCR because um, our executive director, Vince Warren, always says if you bring an artist, lawyer, and storyteller in the room, you can change the world. So we've been doing this for years, um, bringing these three groups together, and it seems like you've now worn all three hats for CCR. (laughs) Yeah,
2: (laughs) I would say that's true. And having also been privileged to guest uh, with Vince informally at the Law for Black Lives when we did a little singing together with his band, I can mm-hmm. see where that cross-fertilization is so important and welcomed. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
1: yeah. So did that work as a cultural artist and um, interacting with your friends for attorneys? Did that impact your desire to go to law school?
2: That was not specifically the impetus, but i tell you what was. I latched on to people's lawyers who were, just role models for me in terms of courage in a place where it was very difficult to be courageous. So Mm -hmm. I was able to experience. My best friend, my children's godfather, is uh, Tarif Warren, who is the lead attorney on the Central Park Five case Mm -hmm. and a number of other cases, including representing our Muslim brothers after the uh, World Trade incident. Mm -hmm. So he is one of those revolutionary lawyers. And then there was uh, Shokwe Lumumba, and others who I saw how they navigated through the court system and through the justice system and that really made me want to look more deeply into what they were doing and how they were doing it. Okay. And I was still a support person basically and a cultural worker but through going around to these different events where they would be speaking or where they would be having demonstrations where we would pack the courtroom whether it was the rap brown trial or whether it was a trial against some cop that had killed a child i was able to see firsthand the power of a courageous voice in the law mm-hmm. and so over time i started thinking i said you know i've always liked law shows i've always been intrigued you know by the perry mason type shows and other shows you know and I just felt like I got a big voice Mm -hmm. and I should use it, you know, and be in those places where most often my people are not allowed to be. And that if I could be there, I could leverage voices that have been excluded and make sure that we are not counted out. So over time, I made the decision to at least apply. To law school. I didn't really know if I would get in mm-hmm. because I didn't have a lot of options. I was raising a family in New York City, so I couldn't go off to Howard like I wanted to do, you know, to study law at the great historically black college, Howard University, where Thurgood went. And certainly uh, i that was my desire, but logistically and financially it wasn't in the cards for me. So I had to think about where am I going to go, which school am I gonna go to, you know? And I had applied to other schools, but then when CUNY offered me the opportunity, I decided I would go there instead because uh, they made no pretense about having a school that really focused on law in the service of human needs. And everybody from the professors to the students, a lot of them had been involved in activist work and were using their considerable legal skills and ability to analyze and think through issues. They were using those skills toward liberation of those who are the most downtrodden, those who are the most oppressed. So I made the decision to go ahead to CUNY, and I was not disappointed by CUNY because it was a place where I could do laboratory work. Mm -hmm. I could try out theories, I could try out my style of advocacy, I could try out my voice and get ready to really do battle in an arena where, historically, myself as a black woman and other black women have been excluded.
1: Okay. And so you're now in law school, you um, apply to become an Ella Baker intern at the Center for Constitutional Rights, you get that opportunity, and then you ask to go to Mississippi. Yes. Why?
2: Well, I had already met uh, Margaret Carey McRae.
1: Tell us who she is. uh,
2: She is a judge now. She's a circuit court judge in Washington County in Greenville, Mississippi. Uh, And circuit courts typically handle criminal cases. That's what she presides over. But before that, she was an attorney with CCR, and she was director of CCR South, which is what it was called. And so through her mentoring and her encouragement... That is how I became connected to the legal aspect of CCR South.
1: Okay. So you were director of CCR South from 1999 to 2001? Correct. And I know you've worked on a number of different cases from workers' rights in shipyards to uh, education and environmental justice cases to the church burnings. Can you talk about just a couple of what you feel are the most impactful cases that you worked on when you were director?
2: Okay, sure. I think by far, beyond a doubt, the most impactful case that I was privileged to work on was a case against the largest employer in the state of Mississippi. The case was in development during my tenure at CCR. And when I departed from CCR, I took the case with me to continue it and see it through to its conclusion. But that case never would have gotten off the ground had it not been for CCR. And the culture of CCR in terms of how you bridge the activist's life with the legal life. Who was the defendant? The defendant was Northup Grumman, The largest employer in the state of Mississippi, originally their name was Ingalls Shipbuilding. Mm -hmm. They've changed the name a few times. I'm sure they have. The name that sticks now is Northrop Grumman Shipbuilding. And they are still the largest employer in the state. And at the time when the case was brought to my attention... And it was just in development. Judge McRae had built the relationships with the workers. Uh, There was a group called the uh, Ingalls Workers for Justice, uh, led by a fantastic group called the Black Workers for Justice. And they were the ones who were organizing the workers at the organizing level while we were trying to put together the underpinnings of a legal case. And we began to interview people, we began to shore up the plaintiff's pool, and began to look specifically at people and intentionally at those who would be willing to make good witnesses. And not that they had to be skilled at being witnesses because we were going to provide them with the training, but they had the mindset of knowing that through talking up and speaking up, you can win. And even if you don't get a verdict, you're still winning because you put issues on the radar that have never been on the radar before, except in negative ways, except in ways to discount you as a black worker.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting that you mention that you don't have to win. Um, we still believe that and practice that at the Center for Constitutional Rights. We will take lawsuits knowing we don't have a chance in how to win, but it brings attention to the issue. Absolutely. So what were some of the issues with the shipyard? What was going on? Okay,
2: Uh, it was a Title VII action, and that, of course, is the Title VII Act of 1960, Civil Rights Act of 1964. It addresses issues of discrimination in the workplace, race, gender, religion, national origin. Our case was based on race, and it was based on the maintenance of a racially hostile work environment. And that played out in so many severe ways, including the making of nooses, Mm. attempted lynchings, smearing the walls with the most racist graffiti and sexist graffiti imaginable. Threats, recruitment of the Klan. They had posters they wrote on the walls, join your local Klan chapter, don't worry. The shipyard has five chapters. Uh, They even had a phone number listed on the uh, graffiti telling you where to call if you wanted to be a member. Of course, it was a bogus number, but the point is the intimidation factor, mm-hmm. the fact that black workers were told the Klan is here
0: right.
2: in and of itself is a force of intimidation is a threat to your staying alive. And so for those who are older, who had had the history of having a loved one who was lynched, mm-hmm. they could relate to this modern day terror that they were experiencing in the shipyard in the 21st century.
1: Right, I was just gonna remind our listeners that you were there from 1999 to 2001. This was not a 1960s case. We filed
2: it in 2001 and it started with a 2000 EEOC charge Mm -hmm. and we did not at first get a cause finding. We were notified by EEOC as a courtesy notification that they were going to issue a no cause finding. And I said, are you kidding me? Right. Where nooses are being made and people's lives are being threatened and there are attempted lynchings and racist graffiti all over the walls. Are you kidding me? You are not going to issue a cause finding even on racial hostility? Mm. And so the guy says, well, we're going to take another look because I had an inexperienced investigator. I'm going to send someone else. Okay. So they sent someone else. And by this time, the FBI had come in Because we also allege criminal wrongdoing through these threats, right? Mm -hmm. Threats against people's lives. We said those are death threats and they need to be investigated. And the FBI came in and did an investigation and found that there was no criminal wrongdoing. But they did admonish the shipyard officials and told them they had 72 hours to get that SHIT off the walls. And so that was the beginning of Mm acknowledgement. And some slight tinge toward validation, right? That here, these workers have been talking about this for decades. Finally, it looks like someone might be listening at least enough to say, get it off the walls when it had been on the walls for decades. Right. So that said, though, EEOC was not convinced and they were prepared to issue a no cause finding. But when they went back to the shipyard and did a full-blown investigation of the hostility the images of hostility in the workplace, that is when the investigator became enraged. And he became enraged because he saw where they had put white paint over the permanent black marker of hate, right? Mm -hmm. These messages of hate were in permanent black marker. And they did a sloppy job and they didn't prime it. And so when he saw that they had smeared over the graffiti and it was protruding, coming out, seeping through, he became enraged and said his main reason for issuing the cause finding is that they didn't even have the decency to cover it up well. Wow. Well, I said to myself, that is not what I'm getting at, but I'll take it. Right. If that's gonna be a cause finding, I'll take it. And sure enough, there was a cause finding we had a press conference and the shipyard officials categorically said that I was lying, I misrepresented the truth, that in fact EEOC found nothing. And what they were referring to was the fact that EEOC said in the same determination letter, we don't find anything as to promotions, right? Because my clients allege that they were denied promotions because of the color of their skin. Mm -hmm. But we do find that the employer has maintained a racially hostile work environment in violation of Title VII. We went to the drawing board. When the press person asked us, when the reporter asked us, what do you say to that? They're saying that EEOC didn't find anything. I said, yes, yes, I hear what they're saying. As to the most important issue, as to the life-threatening issue, EEOC found cause, and they found that the employer had maintained a racially hostile work environment. I said, and you can see it on the determination letter if you would like to see it. And she said, yes, I would like to see it. I called my office. I asked our legal assistant to fax it over. Mm -hmm. They faxed it over. They put it on the screen. And they scalloped out and highlighted the section of the determination letter finding the employer in violation of Title VII for maintaining a racially hostile work environment. Mm. And that was a major victory. They had never been cited like that before. And EEOC had seldom cited a workplace for racial hostility. And we did that. And And the reason I say we did that is because the people who were wounded, were the architects of the case.
1: So let's change gears a little bit and talk about the Mississippi Workers Center for Human Rights. Can you give us an overview of this organization and just types of cases that you and your staff are litigating? Sure. The
2: Mississippi Workers Center was born on December 30th, 1996, following a Southern Human Rights Organizers Conference, which I had founded and it convened at the University of Mississippi School of Law at the behest of and the invitation of the first black dean, Louis Westerbrook. At that conference, there was a call for an organization that would represent black workers who were not in unions, Mm -hmm. because we're only 5% union population in the state. We may be less now, but at that time, we were like around 5% of people who were workers who were in unions. Ricky had spoken, and I'll withhold his last name because he has gone through some serious stuff, including depression and substance abuse because literally his life was destroyed by Tyson Foods, Mm -hmm. the the chicken plant Mm -hmm. where he worked. He worked as a cleaner. He cleaned the uh, machinery that processes the chicken we eat. And he used chlorine which was the chosen substance, by his boss. And he had been working there for years, so he had inhaled and ingested chlorine for all these years, and he started to get these nosebleeds. Mm -hmm. Well, he didn't think too much of it. He thought maybe it had been his pressure, or maybe it was allergies or whatever, but he went to the doctor, and the doctor said that it was precancerous, a nostril infection Mm -hmm. that was precancerous, and that if he didn't stop working with the chemical that he was working with, it would turn into cancer and it could kill him. He gave Ricky a list of substances that were preferable and safe for him to work with, for him to take like a doctor's note Mm -hmm. to his employer. All of them included water-based type solutions that he could safely work with to do the same job but not be inhaling this cancer-causing substance, right? So when he gave it to his boss, the employer looked at it, basically blew it off and said, okay, yeah, we'll take care of it. You just get back to work. Weeks later, nothing happened. Someone advised Ricky to file an anonymous OSHA complaint. He filed the complaint anonymously, but what we believe happened is that the bosses put two and two together. So when OSHA showed up, they said that was Ricky that did
1: that. Mm-hmm. And
2: on the day that OSHA showed up, the workers were begging and pleading with them, "Look at our workplace conditions. Look how we're working. We're standing in this cold water. Our hands are we got white fingers from the freezing cold that we're working in. These these conditions are really unsafe and life-threatening." And the, the person who was inspecting the chicken from the USDA said, "We're only here to inspect the chickens." Wow. I will never forget that And didn't take note Even as an agency There was a federal agency Who could have passed the message on Done a referral They did nothing And so Ricky was in the plant The day it was being inspected The day that OSHA came Ricky was in the plant His bosses cleared out his locker When he got to the locker room His stuff was on the floor And the padlock had been taken And they said to him, you'd no longer work here. They fired him, and they did an article about it in the oldest black paper called The Jackson Advocate. They did an article about Ricky Woodall. I was reading it. And I said, my goodness, this guy, he's got to speak at our human rights conference. So I found him Mm -hmm. through calling Jackson Advocate. And he agreed, and he came, and he keynoted. And when he spoke, he told the story about what happened to him. And at that moment, after the plenary, there was a call for the establishment of an organization that would represent vulnerable workers like Ricky. Well, I still wasn't convinced that they were talking about me organizing it. Two months later, I decided that very thing. I said, we need a workers organization. I named it the Mississippi Workers Center for Human Rights. I received a $3,000 grant from a friend who was a funder who had a a discretionary fund. She said, I have $3,000. Can you use it? I said, can I use it to start the worker center? She said, you can use it for any of your movement work that you want to use it for. It's yours. From that, I hired a friend girl to come in and help me set up the files. We went to Office Depot and bought folders and files and file cabinets. We set up shop in my apartment. Mm -hmm. That was where we first were in a garden apartment in Oxford. And we began to do the nuts and bolts of creating the Mississippi Worker Center. I then received word from a friend who was working at the Ford Foundation who had another discretionary amount for me, but this time it was 50000 mm-hmm. So I said, man, I feel like I've hit the lotto. So I hired a part-time person, right, to really, really work and establish the training program and help me get the center off on all fours. That was in '96. She continued as a part-time person. In 99, I was recruited to work at CCR. I continued to do the nighttime trainings for the worker center, but I was a full-time worker for CCR. Mm-hmm. And we rented space from CCR, one office in CCR for the worker center. They allowed us to rent there for like three or 400 bucks. Thank them. <laughs> right? And so that was the merging and the sort of connection between CCR and the workers center yeah. when it first started. Well, at first, all we were doing, and that's a big all, were these trainings. Mm-hmm. And we were doing them on demand wherever someone asked us to go. We had not streamlined, we had not done a strategic planning where we would say we only go to these areas, we're only going to do this many a year. Everywhere, literally everywhere we went, the Sunbeam workers in Marion County, who were denied workers' rights and human rights and mistreated so badly in that workplace where those appliances, and we hear about the blender and the mixer, Mm -hmm. that plant was treating workers deplorably, and so was Columbia Cable, which makes the largest part of a Cadillac car. Mm. So that makes them auto workers, but they were organized to be two small tool and die factory workers. Mm-hmm. No one would touch them. They never called themselves auto workers. They were never organized to be considered by identity as auto workers. Retaliation was visited on them constantly. We met in secret, so we thought. And one of our meetings was at a public restaurant. And unfortunately, at that restaurant, two of the owners of the plant, of, of this particular plant were there they were in Columbia Cable they were in the restaurant mm-hmm. in a booth hiding and they came back to work the next day and said we saw you and that New York lawyer and they were referring to me now how'd they know I had lived in New York they had done their homework right, right? they had done their intelligence we okay. saw you and that New York lawyer and, and you better watch your step right so they retaliated mm-hmm. against them and started giving them more work or taking hours away. They just started retaliating against them because they could. So at that point, we closed ranks. All of our meetings were done in secret at the apostolic church that was pastored by one of our friends. We met in secret. We could no longer meet in public places. Right. And just as we were getting ready to really sock it to them, we had a campaign called "Don't." That Columbia Cable Rolls Over the Workers, We had a poster that we designed that had a big red Cadillac on it. And we were educating people to the fact that the biggest part, bigger than the engine in a Cadillac car, is made by Mississippi workers. Mm -hmm. And so it was a consciousness-raising effort and event. But the retaliation was so visceral and so bitter, and we were new. And we didn't have the resources or the coffers to really, really, really take them on and really, really campaign. So we only did, we could only do small work, which turned out to be big work in terms of raising consciousness, in terms of outing that company that was really, really exploiting workers. And to this day, that is still a project that we would like to see happen. We would like to see them sued. We would like to see those workers have the justice they deserve. We also represented a group of workers in called True Temper Sports. That is a place that makes golf shafts, uh, skateboard wheels, roller skate wheels, and uh, some other part that golfers use that only they make. Mm-hmm. I and I alone prosecuted those cases. We had no co-counsel. Wow. We had a paralegal mm-hmm. who was allowed to sit at council table with me by special permission so she could hand me files mm-hmm. and help me marshal through to keep me on track because I had no co-counsel. We got not one verdict. Every one of those cases ended in what we call judgment notwithstanding the verdict. Every case ended that way. And why? Because we took a chance. We liked the plaintiffs. They were brave. Mm-hmm. And they were rebel-rousing hellraisers in the plant. So we liked them. Yeah. But they had not applied for any of the promotions. They had seen other colleagues and co-workers apply and been denied because they were black, and they decided what's the sense Mm -hmm. in applying. But we were in the Fifth Circuit. We were in the state of Mississippi, not New York, where there is this thing called futility that does fly in the Second Circuit, but it doesn't fly in the Fifth Circuit. And we had to learn that the hard way. We had to regroup and strategize and say to ourselves out loud, we miscalculated this, we made a mistake, we should have made sure that somebody applied, okay? Yeah. That somebody applied and we sandwich in the rest. And I learned this from Shokwe Lamumba. He would tell me that. He said there's bad cases in terms of no recovery, but you put them in the middle and on the bookends, you have these strong cases, right? And so you kind of bring everybody along. So in the end, we didn't get any verdicts, which meant in a way through the court system, we didn't get justice, not true. About six weeks later, I received a call from one of the lead plaintiffs who told me, we just got two black foremen for the first time in 45 years of that plant's existence. The plant was 38 to 40% black, and they had never had a black foreman. They got two in one day. The other thing he told me was that the quality assurance people who went around with the clipboards... They were all white males. Suddenly, that shifted, and the majority of them were African Americans. That's great. All so, this happened because they dared not to turn back, because most people had started out suing them, but they would drop it. They'd get afraid midway, or they'd be threatened midway. Mm-hmm. But these brave brothers went all the way. So I'm just saying there's been ways that you can win
1: where you think you've lost. Right. This has been an amazing opportunity. Thank you for sharing all of these stories with us to I hope our listeners, I know our listeners, have learned something about the, the work that was happening in the, the Southern Regional Office and with your um, Mississippi Worker Center for Human Rights. So thank you again for your thank time you. today.
2: Thank you for having me, and I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thank you. News at the Center for Constitutional Rights. Thursday, the Center for Constitutional Rights celebrated CCR Celebrates Changemakers and launched its new identity with the Brand Reveal Party. At the Center for Constitutional Rights, we believe if you have an activist, lawyer, and a storyteller, you can change the world. The Changemakers Awards honors folks in these categories who stand up and fight for social justice. This year's honorees included Dolores Canales, co-founder of California Families to Abolish Solitary Confinement and a former Soros Justice Fellow. Sarah Jayusi, a 22-year-old writer, storyteller, activist who uses the art of spoken word to stand with the Center for Constitutional Rights and its ongoing challenge to communication management units or prison units designed to isolate certain prisoners and the federal prison system from the rest of the Bureau of Prisons population. And Miriam Buell and the law firm Weill Gottschall, co-counsel in our successful fight against solitary confinement at California's Pelican Bay Prison. Miriam, pro bono counsel at Weill Gottschall, has coordinated the firm's award-winning worldwide pro bono program since 2005. And as Ian said, we recently announced the expansion of our work in the Southern Region. That special announcement was made at Changemakers by our board president, Catherine Frankie. The evening continued at Change is Good, the after party to CCR Celebrates Changemakers and the organization's new Identity Reveal Party. We worked the last 10 months updating our logo, tagline, mission and vision statements and key messages. Please check out these new elements on our website, ccrjustice.org. More than 300 guests were able to learn about the Center for Constitutional Rights, legal advocacy and communications work throughout the decades with installation panels that highlighted our areas of work. Guests also enjoyed interactive stations where they were challenged to express what they were fighting for, displayed their pride through temporary tattoos featuring our new logo and progressive ideals, and were moved by listening to past and present protest songs. For videos and photos, please check out our Instagram account at CCR Justice. Last
0: week was also busy on the legal front, especially with immigration. Our client, Mr. C., a Honduran immigrant, had a big victory when he was reunited last Monday with his two-year-old son, After we filed a federal lawsuit challenging his and his son's detention and separation, the father and son had been held in separate New York detention facilities and barred from talking for five months. In his ruling, Judge Alvin K. Hellerstein said he did not understand the government's rationale nor the humanity and that separating a father from his child was the most cruel of all cruelties. The victory is another step in our fight against the Trump administration's cruel zero-tolerance policy targeting immigrant families. Also on the immigration front, in a new court filing, asylum seekers and an immigrant rights group are challenging the Trump administration's policy and practice of turning back asylum seekers at ports of entry along the US-Mexico border. The latest filing in our Olatrallado versus Kelly case directly links high-level Trump administration officials to a turnback policy. Ordering U.S. Customs and Border Protection agents to restrict the number of asylum seekers who can access the asylum process at ports of entry. You can read more about this case on our website, ccrjustice.org.
1: So that's a little bit about what we've been up to at CCR, and now on with the real AF.
0: I just need you to say the real AF.
3: The real AF. We're here for the real AF with CCR staff attorney, Angelo Guisado. Welcome, Angelo.
4: Hey, thanks for having me.
3: You ready for some big questions? I think so. Okay, Angelo, would you rather only use Twitter or only Instagram?
4: Damn. Probably Twitter. Follow me at Voltaire Lafleur. That's your boy. But your Instagram's so good. Wow. Wow. You can also follow me there at Right RightThurgoodMarshall. That's a shout out to both Chingy and Thurgood Marshall.
3: Aren't they linked, Instagram and Twitter? Is that like four years ago?
4: No, they're not. And I've actually tried to create like a severable line between the two so work doesn't find out about the stuff I do on Instagram and then the stuff I do on Twitter. But we just started an Instagram, and their first video was like, oh, let's use your Instagram. So there went that theory.
3: Would you rather fulfill your biggest wish or resolve your biggest regret?
4: Well, my biggest wish is probably peace in the Middle East. So, I mean, if y'all can figure that out, that's probably going to win. As for, yeah, I think that's it.
0: You're taking it back to like the 90s with that one.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's still a pretty big issue (laughs) over there. I I haven't gone lately, but I think it's probably still pretty contentious. Well, for sure. Just the phrase took me back. Yeah. Yeah. We'll, We'll throw it back.
3: Would you rather be a great dancer or a great singer?
4: I'm kind of both, so I think we can move on to the next question. I'm kidding, that's a joke. I'm a terrible singer.
0: Don't no, you hate? You should have just left it there. No, no, don't you
4: hate when you go to like karaoke and everyone is an amazing singer? Like, y'all already knew that you were all good and you invited me knowing I'm trash at singing? Like, karaoke is supposed to be fun, but bad.
3: What's your best karaoke song?
4: Absolutely, the Thong song by Cisco. It's a performative piece. It's not so much about like the cadence or the voice, but there's some dance moves in there.
3: So it's a little bit of both. Great singing and great dancing. That's right. Would you rather hang out with your past self or your future self?
4: Probably my future self. By then I I presume I'm ambassador to some country that hasn't even been invented yet. I have really high hopes for myself.
3: Would you rather? (laughs) That
0: would be after peace in the Middle East, right? That's right.
3: Would you rather have a dragon or be a dragon?
4: Oh, that's easy. Uh, Be a dragon. The prospect of having a dragon seems so daunting. Like, imagine cleaning up for that thing. So I live in Brooklyn, and there's no room. I barely have room for a cat if I wanted it. Where would I put a dragon?
3: Would you rather have front row tickets at Prince or Jimi Hendrix? Prince. Wow, he
0: said that before you even said Jimi Hendrix's name. R.I.P. to both, but
4: Prince is otherworldly.
3: Would you rather argue before the Supreme Court or be a Supreme Court justice?
4: Well, if I became a Supreme Court justice, I presume I'd have to limit my Twitter presence. And I think that's non-negotiable. So I think kind of a repeat argument at the Supreme Court would probably be it.
3: Would you rather hold a snake or a tarantula?
4: Neither. It's not a valid answer. Oh, damn. Probably a snake I mean like a garden snake, that's that's not a big deal. On the other hand a tarantula, yeah, if it's a small snake, a small snake. If it's a large snake, a tarantula. What about you? What would you rather hold? I've held the tarantula. Man, alright. Are we done here?